0: Greetings, humans, and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science Edition number 9, the podcast where I meet interesting people from the world of science and ask all the questions I can to understand what, how, and why they do what they do. I'm coming to you from isolation station, Singapore 42, and today I ask a lot of questions to a linguistics professor that goes to places in Africa and manages to learn languages that only exist through the spoken word. Now before we get into the show, some housekeeping. Uh, If you want help you could subscribe to the podcast and give it a rating wherever you hear your podcast, and that will be extremely helpful. Also if you have any questions or suggestions go ahead and follow me on twitter at lefteris underscore asks and use the hashtag Science to do so. Now on with today's episode where I met Dr. Florian Lyonnais.
1: My name is Florian, Florian Lyonnais. I'm a linguist, and I work at uh, Princeton University as an assistant professor, and I am a specialist of African linguistics and phonology, which is the study of sounds that languages use. I do a lot of fieldwork on languages of southern Chad. I go there every year, I spend time in the villages, and try to describe languages that no one or very few people had worked on before. And um, then I use the data that I collect in the field to work on specific issues or theoretical problems in phonology, that is in what we know or don't know about how languages use sounds. basically.
0: While Dr. Lyonnais has done a lot of work in describing a single language in regards to vocabulary and grammar, it's also quite interesting and important to see how languages in a region are similar or dissimilar with each other. However, as you can assume, there are many parts of speech that can be compared, so they have to narrow it down for each study.
1: It's about comparing as many languages as we could find information on and try to see how uh, those languages um, compare with respect to two features. Well, one big uh, area, which is the vowels and their vowel system. So how many vowels do they use and how those vowel systems are structured? How similar are they? How different are they? And uh, where do we find languages with a particular feature? Uh, the two features that we were interested in are, uh, so what in the paper we call ATR and interior vowels. So ATR is um let's start with interior vowels it's a little easier interior vowels are if i simplify a little bit vowels that are produced with your tongue neither towards the front of your mouth nor towards the back of your mouth and in most european languages with many exceptions that we are not aware of usually when you're not a linguist uh, you have vowels that are produced uh, with the tongue at the front of your mouth Or the tongue at the back of your mouth. So E, for example, if you try to think of where your tongue is when you pronounce E, it's bunched towards the front of your mouth. If you go from E to U, you realize that your tongue is moving backward. So E is a front vowel because the tongue is towards the front, and U is a back vowel because the tongue is towards the back. And you have vowels where the tongue is neither toward the front nor toward the back. These are central vowels. Languages that have front vowels and back vowels have a binary opposition. It's either front or back. Okay. Languages that have central vowels have a three-way opposition, front, center, or back. So we were looking at basically how many oppositions do you make on this front to back continuum, either two or three. So that's the interior vowel issue. How many languages in, in, in the northern half of sub-Saharan Africa, that is from Senegal to Sudan and from the Sahara to uh, basically the northern fringes of the, ba- the Congo Basin, how many of those languages have a two-way opposition versus how many have a three-way opposition? And where are these languages? Is the distribution meaningful or is it just haphazard? That's the first feature, uh, which has not been studied very much in that part of the world, which is why we wanted to basically know more about this. Where, where are those languages that have a three-way opposition? The other feature is much more frequently studied in linguistics and much more well-known. It's particularly prevalent in that part of Africa. Uh, and it's very rare outside in the world. So it's a feature that is known as, an, as a basically West or East African feature and very rarely used by languages elsewhere, and that's the ATR feature. ATR, that stands for Advanced Tongue Root. And basically, uh, you have languages where the vowels are divided in two groups, vowels that are produced with the root uh, of the tongue pushed forward and vowels that are produced without that, or with a retracted tongue root, basically. So you have a two-way opposition that has to do with the position of the tongue, and that gives different colorings to the different vowels. Uh, if you think of the tense-lax distinction in English, which probably doesn't mean anything to you, but that's the difference between beat and bit. So the tense vowels are the ones that are longer and more extreme in their articulation. Beat, for example, uh, or food, and the lax vowels are the ones that are shorter and maybe a little less extreme in their articulation like bit or hood. So the difference between beat and bit and food and hood. Um, that basically is now very often described in terms of advancement of the tongue, of the, of the root of the tongue, sorry. So that, uh, that's the sort of distinction that I'm talking about. So as a
0: reminder... There are two different characteristics that we'll be discussing in the next few minutes. They have to do with the position of the tongue in the pronunciation of vowels. So, by studying these languages, Dr. Leonid and his co-workers discovered different geographic locations where ATR characteristics was prevalent and other locations where ATR was absent and interior
1: vowels were used. So, what we discovered by looking at 681 languages spoken in that area, is that basically, if you have ATR, you don't have interior vowels. And if you have interior vowels, you tend not to have ATR. There's a sort of complementary distribution between these two features. And what's particularly interesting is that languages that belong to a particular cluster, say the cluster that has ATR in West Africa, or the cluster that has central vowels in Central Africa, are not all related. It's not like it's all Romance languages or Germanic languages. So, sure, they have the same features. They descend from the same ancestor language, and basically they have a lot of features in common. No, these are languages that are sometimes as different uh, in terms of classification as uh, French and Chinese would be, for example. So okay. they really do not belong to the same linguistic families. They don't have the same ancestors. They have very different histories, and yet they share features. Um, and what's interesting about that is that defines linguistic areas, that is areas, geographical areas, where languages, even though they're from different language families, over time end up converging on certain features. So there's a lot of horizontal transfer from language to language through God knows what, historical scenarios, contact. And so by looking at linguistic features that are shared across linguistic families in areas, in compact areas, you basically start asking historical questions like, how did this come about historically? It's not just about defining linguistic features. It's like, hey, let's try to figure out why those languages in this particular area share so many features when languages of the same family in a different area will have different features because they're in a different area. Yeah. Why are those aerial signals so strong that languages that are in those areas end up over time converging on those signals, basically? So the answer to the why question we don't have, of course, uh, but we... Um, have found cases of languages where we know enough about the history of the linguistic family to show that those languages migrated, the speakers of those languages migrated, that the ancestor language was spoken in, for example, East Africa. That's the case for the a language family that we call um, Central Sudanic, which is spoken in po- pockets of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Northern Uganda, parts of Sudan, and Chad. Basically, so, Central Africa. And there's one big family within this family that uh, is mostly spoken in the northern part of the Central African Republic and Chad. And uh, a linguist who has worked on this language family for a while and and done a lot of uh, historical work, comparative work, uh, through linguistic information, basically determined that the ancestor language was spoken in South Sudan, somewhere between the border between northern, uh, the Northern Central African Republic, South Sudan, and Uganda, somewhere about there, and mm-hmm. showed that the migration must have been from there into the Central African Republic into Chad, so migration towards the west and towards the, basically the northwest.
0: This study shows how language changes from its ancestry and how the aerial effect plays a role in the adaptation of the language. This is the first step in identifying this effect, and then further study by multiple other disciplines is required in order to understand what the reason is for these changes. One thing of note is that this research used information drawn from the existing literature, which once again shows the importance of sharing accurate data and how someone's quote-unquote old data can be reused and become new data for a different study. However, I was curious, how did the study of 681 languages look like?
1: Yeah, so this is a database of things we found in the literature. So it's not our fieldwork. We didn't go to okay. those countries and the three of okay. us. I did 681 <laughs> little. I've been working with the same language for 10 years and I'm not done yet. So basically a database of description and analyses that we were able to find in the literature. In grammars and articles, mostly grammars, or uh, grammar sketches okay. written by field workers over the last century basically mostly the last 50 40 years but some are a little older than that so we basically have to most of the time trust the analyst and say well if he says that there's this particular pattern i'm not going to go back to the congo and check if that's true Particularly when the language is spoken in war zone. This is not something I'm going to do. So I'm going to trust the, or I don't trust this because the data that he's presenting is really not in accordance with the analysis. So either I have enough data in this article to redo the analysis myself, in which case we redid some analyses, or there's not enough data and I don't trust it. And I put it in the pile of the 150 languages for which we, that we ended up not including in the, in the survey. But most of the time we just, yeah, read through grammars, uh, read the section on vowels and see what people have said about those languages and how they characterize the vowel system. And then we adapt that to our single grid with our, because we need to basically enter data for all those languages according to the same criteria. So yeah. we basically translate the, whatever terminology is used and whatever analysis is proposed by the author to our own terms so that we can basically compare the languages on the same terms more or less. And we entered this information in a giant um, Excel spreadsheet with I don't remember how many columns, but basically a lot of columns. And codes that would make it easy for us to run statistics. So we needed to be careful. I mean, details, but we needed to be careful with the fonts that we were going going to be using because we have uh, software that can't accept Unicode fonts. And it was, yeah, there was a lot of that going on for a long time. Like, what? how do we enter this data? Most of the descriptions that we looked at, most of the analyses are um, done by linguists who use the International Phonetic Alphabet for that transcription, or their own transcription method, but they explain what the symbols stand for. So, that's one part of the research that Dr.
0: Leonet does. Another aspect of his work is the actual field work where the data to fill those databases are coming from. So, how do you start documenting and writing the rules about a language that you don't speak
1: at all? When you start working on a language that you don't know or that hasn't been described before, uh, you can't learn it, of course. There's nothing. And it's usually a 100% oral language. There's no writing system and no written documents. So you the most frequently used method is to have a translator. That is okay. to find a way to communicate with the people with a contact language. Either a language you speak, if they speak that language too which is the easiest way, of course. Yeah. So the language that I use in chat, for example, where I do most of my fieldwork is French because uh, it's the official language. Okay. okay. Not so Everyone, in particular in the villages, there's very few people who have been to school and who are able to speak French. But you can find in town people who are from the villages in question who have been to school and who speak French. And you can basically try to find someone who's willing to come with you to the villages and basically act as a translator. And then okay. you have translation directly from your language to theirs and back to yours, which is the most common situation for fieldwork linguists. And then if you work for long enough on the language, you end up learning it at some point. If you spend a lot of time in the villages in particular, which is what I do, because I work with an anthropologist and a botanist and an ethnomusicologist to do cultural documentation as well, which you can't do in an office in town. You yes. have to where the language is spoken and where the culture is practiced. So we spend a lot of time in the villages where no one speaks French or any other language that we speak. So at some point, you interact with people in the local language and you end up learning enough of it to be able to do a few things in the language directly. But that takes time. So most of the time, you have a translator, preferably in a language that you speak yourself. Sometimes you don't speak the contact language. And so you have to, and that's happened to me in one village where I went twice, where people spoke probably three or four or five languages, but none of them was French or a language that I spoke. Yeah. And so, uh, and the people that I was traveling with, um, were Chadian, spoke Chadian Arabic, which is the lingua franca of the entire country now, but didn't speak the local language. So we basically went from French to Chadian Arabic, Chadian Arabic to the target language, and then target language back to Chadian Arabic, and then Chadian Arabic back to French.
0: So the choice of fieldwork location is quite important so that researchers know the contact language first before they can start deconstructing native languages. But the logistics of such a task are insurmountable as well.
1: Of course, the logistics depends on where you go. If you do fieldwork in North America on Native American languages, for example, chances are you'll be in a town Or even if you're in the countryside, you'll still have the electricity. You'll still have internet. You'll have HBO and your television in your hotel room. Very different from when you go to, for example, rural Chad or Siberia or, uh, Papua New Guinea, or uh, there's like a variety of conditions in which you can do field work. And that's something to take into account when you choose a field site is what are the conditions of work and will I be functional in those conditions? Uh, so when you do field work in rural chat, for example, you are in a part of the country that is, depending on where you go, but most of the, in most places, very underdeveloped in terms of infrastructure. You'll have no good roads. So you need to figure out how to get there. Uh, what transportation system you're going to use. So rent a car, a four wheel drive or a motorbike or buy a motorbike or figure out how to get there. Uh, there's no electricity there is no in most parts there's a lot of villages now with uh boreholes for drinking water but there's a few villages without the village where i've worked did most of my work for the last 10 years did not have water like drinkable water people drank water from the river and you don't want to drink water from the river if you have a choice you will not do that because it's not good at all (laughs) so we ended up working with a village because we spent a lot of time there and we wanted to thank the village for what they were doing for us in terms of giving us all this material for research so we ended up having a project together and we ended up digging two boreholes in the village and now they have drinking water at first we needed to come with a filter a water filter and we needed to spend two hours per day filtering water yeah so you need to factor that into your uh schedule two hours per day you're not doing linguistics you're filtering water because otherwise have to drink the water from the river and whatever is in it. Yeah. So you have that and then you need to, and the logistics, so that's one aspect of the logistics. Um, another one is electricity. If you're using recorders and microphones and video cameras to record people, some of this equipment uses batteries, so come with your own batteries because batteries you buy in Chad are either extremely expensive if they're good and they're much cheaper in France or in the United States, or they're Chinese and they don't work. For more than one day and a half, and they leak, and you don't want that. Yeah. So that's another aspect. And then every other piece of equipment that needs, that has basically chargeable batteries, and that need, that requires electricity, you need to figure out how you're going to charge them. Because if you're using your video camera every day, you will need to charge your batteries every day. Even if you have spare batteries, you're not going to have 15 spare batteries. So you need to figure out how to do that in a place where there's no electricity. So at first, what we had was uh, foldable solar panels with car batteries and uh, lots of cables and stuff in all directions. It was a, a big mess. So we ended up buying a generator, a good old generator, and that's turned out to be way cheaper and um, more reliable too, and also probably less dangerous for children in the village who don't play with a generator rather than the. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of logistics of that sort to be... Uh, carefully thought about before you get to the field, because once you're there, there's not much you can do if you haven't prepared for that.
0: Other than the logistics aspect of the work, I was curious to find out what are the trust issues that can arise from really a white person going to rural Chad to do field work. Dr. Léonet explained that in some cases where the colonial history isn't too bad, it isn't hard to earn the trust of the locals. However, that's not always the case.
1: There are other parts of the world where it's a little more complicated because of the precisely because of the lack of trust between communities uh if you go to um if you want to do field work in australia or in north america the consequences of colonialism are much starker than in most of former francophone africa and they're still felt today and establishing a a trust relationship is much more complicated in countries that have known a form of apartheid, so South Africa, but also other countries such as, I don't know, French overseas territories like New Caledonia, for example, there is a strong divide between the communities that even when relations, relations with people are easy and pleasant, I mean, you're not attacked. Yeah. Uh, you feel like you're not let in. People will not let you in unless time helps as you gradually build Put the effort in and show that you're not, that you're worth it. And that's, so I do a little field work in New Caledonia and that's very different from Chad. The, the, the way the communities communicate. I mean, New Caledonia is a developed country. It has roads, electricity, internet, uh, water. Um, yeah. people, people go to school because it's compulsory. So they're all educated. You could think that's perfect. That's the wonderful field site. And yet finding people who are willing to work with you takes a long time. Uh, first of all, because people have jobs. So it's not like a village in, in southern, in, in southern Chad where during the dry season, there's no agriculture. So a lot of people don't have much to do. So it's easy to find people who are willing to work with you. In New Caledonia, they have jobs. So like, I don't have the time for this. And when I have time, I want to spend it with my children, not with yeah. you. Uh, so that's of course one of the reasons why it's difficult to get speakers, but it's also you need to build a trust relationship and you feel that you need to do that actively, that it's not granted. It's not like, we're going to trust you until you show us that we can't trust you. It's like we we're going to trust you when you show us that we can. So it really depends on the history and of the. Uh, it's not necessarily the case that if you're a white person going to a non-white area, you are going to be uh, confronted with this trust issue. It's not necessarily the case. One thing that is really helping in chat is that I work with two colleagues that are Chadian. So the anthropologist of the team is a Chadian anthropologist and the botanist is also Chadian. So they're not from the same ethnic group, but they're from Chad. And so it really is. It's much better in terms of, first of all, having the feeling that you are including researchers from Chad who deserve to be included in projects that take place in their own country. And it also helps with the relationship with the people because they know how to talk to people. They know. And also it breaks this old colonial model of the white researcher who knows versus the researches who don't know and who are condemned not to know and to be researches until the end of times and to just help the researcher get a career. Even if the researcher is very nice, it's not a good model to pursue. So I'm happy. And it really does make a difference in terms of the relationships you're able to build with the people when they see, well, one of us is up there. So it's everybody who can be up there.
0: And speaking about giving back to the communities, I was curious if the data that linguists obtain can be used to keep languages alive and help local communities create educational books to teach
1: the language. Yeah, so one of the things that is highly encouraged now compared to, let's say, 30 years ago, is that linguists should, in particular linguists who do fieldwork on... um, Languages that are not described, for which there's very little documentation, in particular for endangered languages, uh, languages that are at risk of not being spoken anymore in 10, to 15, or half a century, is to produce documents that can be used for linguistic development or language revitalization in case the language goes extinct. That is, if in the future the language is not spoken anymore, or if you're working with the last three speakers who are 97 and 99 years old. Yeah. Um, Five years from now when they're all gone, if their descendants want to relearn the language, then if you have done your fieldwork correctly, they can use your data, the result of your research, to relearn the language and maybe build schools and help people relearn the language like people have done for Cornish and Manx, for example, which are two uh, Celtic languages from Great Britain that went extinct in the 18th century, I believe, and that got revived recently by people who really wanted to revive those languages and uh, had enough documentation, because these were written languages, to basically do that and uh, recreate a community of speakers.
0: I had more questions about other aspects of Dr. Leonet's work and his collaboration with other disciplines. But in the interest of your time and his, we're calling it for another edition of the Ask Science. I'd like to thank Dr. Leonet for his time and his comments, and I hope to interview him again in the future. I'm sure I'll have many more annoying questions for him. I hope you enjoy today's edition, If you do, please subscribe and give a rating to the podcast wherever you listen to it. Also, if you have any questions or suggestions, go ahead and follow me on Twitter at lefteris underscore asks and use the hashtag lefterisaskscience to do so. Until we meet again, take care, keep learning, and be kind.